We are going to be continuing 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. If you're there, say, I'm there. You guys are quick Bible page turners. Good job. All right, well, we're going to start off with a word of prayer this evening, and then we'll dive into it. Does that sound good? Are we awake? Okay, are you ready? All right, let's go before the Lord in word of prayer one more time. Lord Jesus, we come before you and... God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here at Calvary Vista, Lord. I'm so encouraged by your people. I am so encouraged by what you are doing. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet us here once again tonight. Father, we believe that your word is powerful, that it is living. And we know, Lord, that you desire to speak to us tonight, that you desire to reveal more of yourself and your nature But Lord, you also desire for us to apply your word to our life. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. We invite you here. And we ask, Lord, that you bless our time in your word this evening. And in Jesus' name, your church said, Amen. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. What we are doing is we're going through verse by verse through the book of 2 Corinthians. And if you were with us last week, Pastor Pete gave a great message titled, There is Work to be Done. And in that message, we saw Paul's passion, Paul's paradox, and we saw Paul's purity. And really, he's at a point there as he is writing to the Corinthians like, hey, you guys are now ambassadors in Christ. You've been giving the ministry of reconciliation. It's time to get going. There is work to be done. And here as we approach chapter 7, he's about to kind of um, pivot. He's about to transfer a little bit into a little bit more of exhortation to the church of Corinth. And he's coming from a place of a lot of theology. And as he's pivoting, what he's kind of doing here in chapter 7 is he's clearing the air. He's addressing the elephant in the room. He is peeling back the carpet or the rug and he's taking out everything underneath it. Because if you didn't know, there was some tension between Paul and the church of Corinth. There was a lot of tension. In, for, in fact, I mean, those of you that was with us as we're studying the book of First, First Corinthians, there was a lot of correction. There was a lot of rebuke toward them. And that created a little bit of hostility. And we know, as, as we saw last week, they were a bit confused in, in Paul's apostleship. And so part of why he's writing is to correct that. But we also know it seems to be that there was another letter between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians. And in that letter, it was even sharper. And we're, we're going to get there in a second. He's going to make a reference to to it. But man, there was some tension between the church or the church of Corinth, the Corinthians, and Paul. And so now before he gets going, before he's like, hey, there is work to be done, he takes a moment to pause and he clears the air. And man, Paul does things that sometimes we don't like to do, huh? He's clearing the air. He's facing confrontation. I believe as we open up God's words today and we see how Paul clears the air and he confronts the Corinthians once again, there's going to be great principles that we can apply to our life. And so this is how we're going to break it down tonight. We're going to see Paul's comfort in verses 2 through 7. We're going to see Paul's confrontation from verses 8 through 12. And we're going to see Paul's confidence from verses 13 through 16. So Paul's comfort. Paul's confrontation, and Paul's confidence. What do you read with me beginning in verse 2? Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. 
Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. Here, as Paul begins to clear the air with the Corinthians, he does a classic Paul move. He butters them up a little bit before he gets to the confronting. It's classic Paul. He's really, really, really good at this. And there's a great principle to apply directly there. Is that Paul always sandwiches confrontation or correction or rebuke with a lot of comfort on either end. With a lot of encouragement on either end. And so as he starts off, as he's clearing the air, he wants them to know, hey, I'm coming into this situation comforted. I'm bringing this out, not out of a heart or a motivation to condemn you, but I am comforted. And it's interesting to note that really the whole reason that Paul is writing the book of 2 Corinthians is really to clear the air and he gives some theology and then he gives some further challenge to them by the end of the book. But as he begins chapters 1 and chapters 2, if you remember at the beginning of that, it talked about comfort, the God of all comfort. And and then as he's entering into chapter 2, he does another classic Paul move where he just kind of like goes off into this crazy theological tangent for chapters upon the new covenant and who Jesus is and and how his sufferings and the sufferings of Jesus and how that's a part of the mission of God. And then he goes into this ministry of reconciliation. And so he's going there on this theological tangent. And now, again, in chapter 7, he's reining things back in and he's kind of getting back to the purpose and the heartbeat behind the context of this book. And so he's about to kind of clear the air address the elephant in the room with them. And he begins with telling them, I'm comforted as we approach confrontation. And really, I think we got to pause as we look at all of this and realize that confrontation is a really good thing. Well, confrontation can be hurtful, But confrontation can also be helpful. It depends how you do the confronting. But here we will see that confrontation is key to the change that occurred in the Corinthians. The Corinthians who were, we have done a great research and study on how they were an immoral people. They had a lot of problems. But Paul's confrontation led to their change. And so, as he begins, he tells them, hey, I'm comforted. And in order to have healthy, right confrontation, we see that Paul was comforted because he had a clear conscience. So he starts off here in verse 2. He says, open your hearts to us. Now in chapter 6, he'd already told, told them, I've opened my heart to you. Now he's pleading with them, open your heart 
to me. Uh, you can open your heart to me because I'm not hostile toward you. I'm actually comforted and I, I, I'm, I'm confident toward you. And he goes into this saying that he has a clear conscience, that he has wronged no one, that he has corrupted no one, and that he has cheated no one. And here in itself, it's great application for us as we're confronting others. When conflict occurs in our lives, how many of you are married? You know what I'm talking about. There's conflict in marriage. There's conflict with in-laws. There's conflict in parenting. Can I tell you, growing up, I was the classic avoid-all conflict. Confrontation, escape. No way, nothing. And then I got married. And I realized, okay, that's not going to work. We're going to have to clarify some things when confrontation or conflict arises. I can't just escape from it. We need to deal with this. And then right around the time I get married is I step into ministry. And no one wants someone in ministry that's going to avoid conflict. That's like a recipe for bad disasters. And so I begin to realize over the last five years, like, all right, confrontation is really, really, really important when it's done the right way. And Paul, he's starting off with this confrontation, confronting the Corinthians once again, bringing it up, addressing the elephant in the room and saying, I have a clear conscience about this. And this is key for us to understand. When there's conflict around us or conflict between us and other people, first we need to get right with who? God. And so he says, hey, I have a clear conscience. I have gone before the Lord. He has prayed about this. Like the psalmist David, he has allowed God to search his heart regarding this situation, regarding the conflict between him and the Corinthians. And he can say, I have a clear conscience. I have wronged no one. I've corrupted no one. I've cheated no one. You know, Jesus famously said in Matthew chapter chapter 7, verse 5, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, this is key to confrontation. If we are going to confront others, if there's conflict around us, first we must allow God to speak to us. We got to say, God, you got to take the log out of my own eye. Before I point the finger, you know, it's the classic saying, I heard it growing up, there's three pointing back at you. I got to allow God to work in my heart and to clear my conscience and check my motives first before I approach the conflict or the confrontation. And we see Paul is doing just that. He is checking your heart. So if you're a note taker, you can simply write in the margin by your Bible, before you talk to people, talk to God. Talk to God. Talk to God about it. You've got some inner turmoil. You're anxious about a relationship. You've got something that's frustrating you. First talk to God before you talk to people. It is very clear that this is what Paul did. He is going into this with a clear conscience. And because he has a clear conscience, he's comforted. How many of you have gone into conflict or confrontation Without a clear conscience, you're not very comfort, you're, you're not comfortable with it. It's, you don't go in like, okay, I got this. This is going to be all right. You're like, I have no idea how this is going to go. So as we allow God to search our heart first and we can go in with a clear conscience, we actually go in comforted. This is the case for Paul. So Paul's comforted because first, he has a clear conscience. Secondly, because he is going into this situation without condemnation. Read with me again in verse 3. He says, I did not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts 
to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. So as Paul is going in to confront them or to clear the air or to address the elephant in the room, he is doing it without condemning them. And this is key. I mean, this is what flows out of a clear conscience, but it's so countercultural to what the world says in dealing with conflict. The world says to assert your dominance, to prove your point, to go for it. You got to just kind of run all over them. And that is certainly not the case for the Christian. When it comes to confronting conflict, to confronting others, we need to go into this situation without condemning the other people. You see, Paul is entering the situation free of guilt, but he is also going in to free the guilty. He's going in free of guilt, but also to free the guilty. He's not holding their sin over their heads. In fact, as we read in chapter 7, he doesn't even bring up the things that he was confronting. He's just bringing up the fact, hey, those letters were pretty intense. Thank you for receiving it. He's clearing the air with the situation without even holding their sin over their head. He's not trying to condemn them. He actually wants to come to a place of reconciliation and restoration. And so, This actually also gives him boldness, though, in approaching this situation. If you've ever gone into a conflict or you're confronting someone and you go in to prove your point, it never goes very well, does it? You go into your spouse to prove your point, why this needs to be done this way, or to a coworker, or to a person in authority, to prove your point, to put all the blame onto them. That gets no one anywhere. And so Paul is going in without condemnation. He's going in free of guilt, and he's going in to free the guilty. Notice also this. I think this is so cool. At the end of verse 4, he says, Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. Underline that. Highlight that. Circle that. Our tribulation. Notice as Paul is bringing up this conflict, instantly the language he's using is, Hey, we're in this together. You were afflicted. You were experiencing tribulation. It's not a me versus them or me versus you, us versus them mentality that Paul says. He, he validates in a sense, hey, I know this has been stressing you out. I know you've experiencing tribulation and affliction from this as well. Paul is living out what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 when he said to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. He's putting them together. Our tribulation. And again, this is so countercultural to what the world tells us to do when it comes to conflict and confrontation. I was reading, I just looked up like keys to conflict, like on Google. It's so hilarious, the stuff that comes up from different psychologists. One, it said, how to respond to conflict, avoid or attack? It's like, okay. That, that is neither the situation that Paul gives right here. We're not going to avoid the problem. We're not going to avoid the conflict. We're not going to avoid the confrontation. And we're not going to attack them and run them all over and get our point across. He's going in without condemning them. 
And he's using this language, our tribulation. He's putting them together. You see, when, when we're dealing with confrontation, when we can agree on the same goal, it's easier to get through whatever the problem is. Like, for instance, like, say, say you're arguing or something comes up in your marriage. When, when you get to the place where you're like, hey, hun, this isn't working out for either of us. This is stressing us both out. And you put it in that place where you're together and you're like, hey, I know you want to get through this. I know I want to get through this. Let's talk about this. When you get to that same goal and you bring together that same vision, now it's easier to get through the confrontation or the conflict. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. And so he walks into this as he's bringing it up, comforted once again. He's comforted because he has a clear conscience and because he is without condemnation. But he's also comforted by Titus's coming. And there's some key, key insights in here. Read with me again in verses 5 through 7. He says, For indeed when we come to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. Now notice that language again. Comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. We see that things were so tense between Paul and the Corinthians that he needed Titus to go on his behalf. He needed a mediator. We know the Matthew chapter 18 model, right? If a brother offends you, you go to them directly. If they don't receive it, bring a witness in. It seems this is what Paul was doing with the Corinthians. He brings Titus into the picture as a mediator into this situation. And so Titus is going to deliver one of the letters to the Corinthians. And he comes back to Paul. And Paul is in torment over this situation, as we'll see in the moment. And not only does he have this inner turmoil over the relational aspect, of the tension between him and the Corinthians, but he's facing a lot of outer turmoil going on as well. A lot of persecution and a, a lot of spiritual warfare there as he's in Macedonia, yet he's comforted by the coming of Titus. Why was that? Because Titus came with a good report. He came to Paul with the good news that the Corinthians had finally received his correction. That they'd finally received his rebuke. And this teaches us a couple things. Number one, it teaches us when, when there's a conflict going on and you bring in a mediator, when that mediator needs to be a peacemaker. And I think we get this wrong sometimes. You know, the proverb says, a fool vents. And sometimes when there's conflict or confrontation, we vent to others. And rather than getting a peacemaker, we get another troublemaker in the mix of things. And things only get more tense, more hot, more heated, more frustrating. And so we see Titus was a peacemaker. And as a peacemaker, he was not ignoring the problem that was on at hand. That's another temptation that some of us have. When we get into, thrown into a situation where there's conflict, there's a tendency once again to avoid the actual problem. But Titus doesn't do this. He brings the problem. He's working through the problem with them. Not only is he a peacemaker and he's working through the problem, but we see that Titus comes back with a good report. And if we're real here, I mean, these are two, like Paul and Titus were really, really good friends. They were close. 
Titus was his disciple, Paul's disciple. Paul was pouring into them. And when your friend gets hurt, what do you have the reaction to do? To be hurt back. You, you want to tell those Corinthians how it is. You want to side on Paul's side. So man, this took a lot of tact from Titus not to be subjective or to pick a side or to be biased in this situation, but to be objective and to be a peacemaker and to also have that same heart of restoration and reconciliation. He could have easily come back with another problem, with another complaint. The church of Corinth was pretty messy. And although we'll see in a moment they were repentant, I guarantee you there were still a couple of complainers. There were still a few people that were not repentant, that were not into it, that were frustrated. And so Titus comes back tactful and sharing all the good news. And I love this because it's so helpful when confronting conflict or or something's going on. We have to remember what the Bible says when it says that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Both Paul and Titus had a love for these people. They weren't trying to pick sides. They weren't getting caught up in all the messiness of everything. Titus comes back. He shares the good news. For the most part, they're repentant. And Paul is comforted by this news. It reminds me that the power of life and death is in the tongue. It was this report of Titus that comforted Paul. And again, he could have easily given a different report, but he shares a good report. That report comforts Paul. We have to be careful what we say about others. Especially in the midst of conflict and confrontation, we have to watch our tongues. Paul, in writing to his disciples in the book of 2 Timothy, in verse chapter 2, verse 25, says this, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, But be gentle to all, able to teach, patience, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. In humility correcting. Here is both Paul and Titus. They are living this out. In humility they are correcting the Corinthians. And this led to Paul's comfort. Now, what was he comforted from, though? What was, what was really going on? Well, we see Paul's confrontation from verses 8 through 12. This is where he's really getting into the meat. This is the elephant in the room. This is the dirt under the carpet. He's clearing the air so that they can continue to be on mission and to be ministers of reconciliation. Let's read verses 8 through 12 together. In verse 8, we read, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Here Paul is, and he's getting to the heart of the matter here. 
He's clearing the air with them. He's bringing up that one text that he sent. It was that one letter that went through. And he's like, I didn't know how you guys were going to receive it. In fact, as we look at Paul's confrontation, we'll see three things. It results in rejoicing. It results in repentance. And it results in reconciliation. Paul's confronting the Corinthians first resulted in rejoicing for him. He says there in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice. He's rejoicing. But in the rejoicing, there's both honesty and there's both humility. Two key ingredients for confronting conflict. Honesty and humility. Here he is. He's like, hey, That one letter I sent to you, I regretted it after it went through the mail. After it said sent, I would instantly, there was this anxiety that welled up in between them. I love the humanity of Paul in this moment. The honesty. We've all been there before. We're we're experiencing conflict or, or there's something going on relationally with someone that we love, with someone that we care for. And we send a text. We're like, I don't know if they're going to receive it in the way that I meant to send it. Paul is experiencing this conflict. He's experiencing this inner turmoil. And he's saying, man, at first I regretted it, but now I do not regret it because it worked. He was led by the Spirit. In writing that letter, they received the correction. They received the letter. And so now he is rejoicing. And here we see that we can flip the script on confrontation. The conflict in our lives, the uneasiness, the difficult situations, they can actually result in rejoicing. When often we want to avoid it and escape it, it can result in rejoicing When we have an honesty and humility. Saying honestly, I didn't know how this was going to go. Honestly, I didn't know how you guys were going to receive it. In humility, he's like, man, this was tough for me to send. I was having some regrets. But ultimately, he's rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Because Paul's confrontation also resulted in repentance. And this is what the Corinthians, this was the change. This was the shift. They finally received his correction. We read there, he gets a little intense, but he's, he's bringing out there's these two different types of repentance. Really, I would reference one as remorse and one as repentance. He refers it to as worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is remorse. Godly grief is repentance. Worldly grief is feeling bad for what you've done. Godly grief is feeling bad enough to change. That is repentance. There is a big, big difference between remorse and repentance. If you have little kids, you know, my kids are at the age right now, they're two and one, and my little boy, man, he's so cute. He's just like, way different between my first is a little girl, my second is a little boy. And I have to like kind of be on my daughter sometimes. Like, it's, it's hilarious. Like, I, I'll correct her and she'll be like, why daddy? Why daddy? Why daddy? She's at that stage right now. Everything's why. But Knox does something wrong. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, 
don't do that, Knox. Knox, that's not okay. And he's like instantly like crying. He's like instantly just remorseful. But let me tell you, those little two and one-year-olds, they're still unregenerate sinners. They still are not repentant. They do it over and over and over and over again. They don't fully understand. They're not fully receiving. They're young. But there's remorse. Remorse is crying. You feel bad. Repentance is crying and changing. There's a big, big difference. In fact, repentance is not measured in a moment. Repentance is measured in moments. What I mean by that is repentance, it takes time to see the repentant heart. And so Paul's breaking down here. He's saying, I'm comforted. I'm glad I sent that letter to you. I was anxious at first because I knew it made you sorry. I knew it produced worldly grief. You felt bad. But now I'm rejoicing because it led to godly grief. It led to repentance. It led to change. In other words, Paul's confrontation led to change. This is why confrontation can be a good thing. Because without confrontation, there's no change. And so here he's saying, look, I'm rejoicing in your repentance. I'm rejoicing that there was a change. To further illustrate the difference between remorse and repentance, we see this in two of Jesus' disciples. It's a classic illustration. You have Judas and you have Peter. Now, there's interesting similarities between the two. Both were followers of Jesus. Both were disciples. In fact, both of them, Jesus refers to them as Satan. Remember when Peter, he's like, get away from me, Satan. And he also referred to Judas as one of you as a devil. So he both, he, he, similarity is that he addresses both of them in that way. The other similarity is that he told both of them that they were going to fail. So Judas betrays Jesus and Peter denies him over three times. And we actually read this in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 3. We read that Judas repented in himself. But notice that language. He repented. There was regret. There was remorse. But where was it placed? In himself. He felt bad for his situation. He felt bad for what he did. He felt bad. I mean, his remorse was so intense that he ended up hanging himself. It was intense. But man, he wasn't willing to receive the love and the kindness of God. Because in Romans chapter 2 verse 4, it says God's kindness leads to repentance. It was there for Judas, but Judas didn't want to change. And so that's just worldly repentance. That's worldly remorse. It's feeling bad for what you've done, but not feeling bad enough to change. But then take Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter's like, I will never deny you, Jesus. That won't be me. We're going to be with you to the end. And hours later, he denies Jesus. Three times. And it was days until there was really true repentance with Peter. But ultimately, what happened? After Jesus' resurrection, he comes to Peter there's some insight there that, that it seems like maybe Jesus and Peter had kind of a, a private discussion, a private restoration, a private healing. And then we know that Jesus publicly restored Peter in front of the other disciples. He's, Peter, I love you. Will you feed my sheep? And there's that whole dialogue. There's that whole conversation that goes between Jesus and Peter. But Peter received that kindness He felt bad for what he did, but he was willing to change. 
There was change. But notice, it was over time. And there's a key principle there for us to understand. As a youth pastor, we see this a lot. Kids get caught. They feel bad for what they do. But just because there's remorse doesn't mean there's repentance. To see if there's repentance, we have to wait to see if there's going to be change. And, And in fact, that change will only happen is if we receive the love and the kindness and the goodness of God. It's not the law that leads to repentance. It's not a stern finger and a gnarly look that's going to lead to repentance. Romans 2.4 says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. But repentance happens over time. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of attitude, but it's a change of direction. In fact, I've heard it said, and I love this, that repentance and belief are two sides of the same coin. To believe and to repent, two sides of the same coin. And so as you repent, you need to believe, I did do something wrong. I do need to change. That area of my life, man, that is not good. I need to believe, I need to have faith that the Lord knows better than I do. And then that will lead to repentance. This is key to understanding when it comes to our life and allowing God to work repentance in us. I've heard it said that the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you will repent. Because he's so faithful out of love, just like Paul, the Lord is so faithful to confront our sin. The Lord is so faithful to bring change in our life. Really, that's the elementary definition of repentance. It's change. And I am so thankful that we serve a God that doesn't say, you need to change. And you're all by yourself. He says, you got to change, but I'll give you the power to change. That's the goodness of God. That I don't have to be the same person I was yesterday or five years ago or ten years ago. Thank God I'm a different person. And I pray that God will continue to change me and to transform me into Christ's likeness and to his image. This is what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. There will be constant change. There will be constant repentance. There will be constant confronting from the Lord to say, hey, this area of your life, it needs change. It needs redirection. You need to come before me. You need to lay this down at my feet. And he's such a good God that he brings that change. And here, the Corinthians, they finally receive that change. And we see that that change is measured over time and it produces diligence. We read that at the end of verse 11. Notice this. He gives this kind of a measure or a diagnosis to to know whether or not someone has been repentant. He says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly matter, what diligence it produced in you. There was a producing. There was a changing. And that changing was a clearing of yourselves. What indignation. So they were frustrated. They were angry with their sin. Man, the areas of my life where I've repented, I finally got sick of my sin. That was the turning point. I no longer love my sin. I was sick of it. I wanted to change. I wanted God to change my heart. That is someone that is truly repentant. There's indignation. There's fear. There's two different ways you can look at that. Fear of their sin, of doing it again, or the fear of the Lord. 
There's fear now produced in them. The repentant heart. There's fear. Fear of sin. A fear of the Lord. And a desire. A passion to change. What vindication. What justice. They now want to do the right thing. This is the repentant person. Much different than simply the remorseful person. The person says that says, man, I feel bad. I got caught. But I, I don't really agree with you. I don't need a change. It's kind of a one-time thing. That's the remorseful person. But the repentant person, man, this guy's on revival now. It's been said time and time again that the road to revival is repentance. And here we see the Corinthians are revived. They're revived because there's change. God is changing them. How did that change happen? Confrontation. Paul had to confront them in order to change. They wouldn't have changed if Paul didn't confront them. And man, that's such a great principle for us to remember. And that's the heart of what I feel like the Lord desired for me to share today. Is that we need to flip the script on confrontation. Conflict is not necessarily a bad thing. Sure, it can be hurtful. It can be even hurtful. All the husbands know it's hurtful when your wife says, this needs to change. Your attitude wasn't right there. The way that you talk to the kids, your tone or the face. Man, those have been the most hurtful moments where my wife has come to me in love and care. and says, honey, you got to be careful. You got to be a little bit gentler with your tone. Man, it hurts, but it helps. This is what confrontation does. It leads to change. When there's honesty, when there's humility, when there's a realization of your state of sin. Here the Corinthians are that Paul's confrontation resulted in repentance. And ultimately, we see there in verse 12, it's resulting in reconciliation. Again, Paul reiterates to them one more time. I wrote to you. Not for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He confronted them. He wrote to them out of love for them because he wanted to see them reconciled, reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. This was his heart behind him writing his letters. And it's always the heart of the Lord when he is confronting us. Confronting us in areas where we need to change. It is always for the purpose of reconciliation. It's always for the purpose of restoration. In fact, I would say that confrontation, the Lord confronts us, it actually leads to greater clarity. We're able to see God more clearly when that sin is wiped away. We're now able to be reconciled with him. And this was Paul's heart toward the Corinthians. His confrontation led to rejoicing. It led to repentance. And it led to reconciliation. So ultimately now Paul is ending with confidence. Read with me again verses 13 through 16. Paul writes to them. He says, therefore, because of that confrontation, therefore, because of your repentance, therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. And we rejoice exceedingly the more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And 
His affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Paul's confronting right confrontation led to restored confidence. When we are confronted by the Lord and we change, we repent, it leads to confidence again. I feel confident in the sight of the Lord. I remember who I am. I remember that I'm forgiven. I remember that I'm washed clean by the blood of Christ. I remember that he loves me. I remember that I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm remembered. I'm reminded that he still has a plan for me that he's not going to write me off because of something I've done. I'm restored in confidence because they received Paul's confrontation. And he received it through the hands of Titus. Paul could have even been frustrated still. You didn't receive my letter? You didn't receive me when I came to you? It took Titus? Wow, the young guy? Why couldn't you receive me? Why was it him? But no, that wasn't Paul's heart. His heart was for restoration and reconciliation. So he's rejoicing. My confidence is now restored in you. Right confrontation will always lead to restored confidence. Can I ask you the question, who in your life relationally are you lacking confidence with? A spouse, a family member, a son, a daughter, a co-worker. You're like, man, I don't know what they're saying about me. I don't know. I feel anxious about them. Can I convince you that confrontation done the right way can restore your confidence? Why? Why can we have this? Why can we have a restoration relationally with others? Why was Paul able to forgive the Corinthians? Because Paul knew confrontation on the other side. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9? Saul was his name first. Saul was persecuting Christians. He was killing Christians. And in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, we read this. As Paul or Saul journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. There the Lord graciously confronted Paul. And that one confrontation changed the course of history. Not only did that confrontation, Paul would later go and confront the top dog himself, Peter, the head of the church. Peter, who is being a little sketchy, hating on the Gentiles in front of the Jews. And he goes and he corrects Peter. Man, aren't we glad that Paul confronted and corrected Peter so that we could rejoice in the new covenant that we are one in spirit and body and blood? Wow. See, right confrontation can lead to restored confidence. Paul was able to forgive the Corinthians. He was able to come to this place of reconciliation because he was reconciled to God. You see, all of this is possible because of the cross. You might say, man, my relationally, I've got some relationships in my life that, man, maybe I need to confront, but I don't think we'll ever get anywhere. 
I don't think I can ever come confidently in those relationships again. Can I tell you, there is hope because of the cross. There is hope because of the forgiveness of Jesus. There is hope because he is a good God. There is hope because he is able to change and transform the hearts. There is hope because God's kindness leads to repentance. This is where Paul was at with them. As they're shifting gears now here in the book of 2 Corinthians. As they're about to go on mission. As they're about to get focused and where they needed to go. First, he clears the air with them. He rejoices in them with the repentance and with their their change. And confidence is restored in their relationship. Can I remind you that the Lord can do the same for us in our relationships when we confront in the right way. I'm going to invite the band up here and we're just going to sing some songs and just praise to the Lord. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you as we see this text today. I want to challenge you of maybe a relationship in your life that you're lacking confidence in. To during these songs just to say, Lord, can you give me the right words? Lord, can you lead me in how to confront this person, this family member, this friend? Can you give me the grace? Like Paul, he goes into it first with what? A clear conscience. It's obvious that he talked to God before he talked to the people. So take this moment. These just couple songs as we leave here. Say, Lord, how can you help me to confront rightly? How can you help me to have this heart of forgiveness and this ministry of reconciliation that is the heartbeat of this book? How can you help me to love other people the way that Paul loved them? Or maybe you're here tonight and you need to Get right with the Lord. Maybe you're avoiding an area in your life that you feel like you're too far gone. Maybe you feel like the Lord's upset with you. Man, I believe that the Lord would graciously confront you tonight and say, I love you. I will forgive you. And I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit to meet you where you're at, but not leave you there. To pick you up, to change you, and transform you. That's the goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you gently and generously confront us and give us the power to change, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be a church, Lord, that would learn how to confront rightly. I pray that we would be a church with healthy relationships, that we would be able to receive forgiveness from you and extend forgiveness to one another. I pray, Lord, that we would be a confident church, a bold church in our standing with you and our standing with others. Lord, I just pray that right now, Lord, that you would lead us, maybe a person in our heart that you have spoken, that you've brought to memory. I pray, Lord, that you give this, the, the boldness, the words, the wisdom, and how to confront rightly. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that you've confronted a sin in their life that's holding them back. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that they would experience the power of your Holy Spirit to have victory. I pray that your kindness and your goodness would lead them into repentance right now. In Jesus' name, your church said, amen.